Well, if you'll take your hymnals before you stick them away, um, open up to the very back where we have the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and open up to page 677, which is the 12th chapter. I'm going to start by reading it. This is one of the shorter chapters in the Confession, which is not why I picked it. I wasn't looking for an easy assignment. I'm going to read the entire paragraph. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed in for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of eternal salvation, everlasting salvation. Well, just some introductory information about this chapter before we get into what the Puritans had to say here. It's kind of surprising to find when you look through Philip Schaff's collection, he has got a three-volume work on all the creeds of Christendom, that there's only six of them that have any type of chapter, any type of information on the doctrine of adoption. And the London Confession is one of, one of these six. And the Westminster and the Savoy take their uh, language directly from the Westminster, so they, they share the same wording here for the chapter on adoption. And what's kind of surprising about this is that it's a, it's a doctrine that is central to the gospel message. John writes frequently about adoption and being a son of God, and Jesus mentions it several times as well. And part of the reason for this is, as Drew's been going through the, the doctrine of, of Christ, the early church had other issues that were more pressing to them, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ. And even during the Reformation, the Reformers were more concerned with defending the doctrine of justification. And so it wasn't that adoption was denied outright, but that it was neglected and in having a formal exposition until much later. And another reason for the obscurity of adoption over church history is there's a debate about how adoption should function in what's called the ordo salutis. And now this is a, a kind of a $10 theological word. Sometimes Pastor Hill will mention these $5 theological words like justification and regeneration and sanctification. But these all function together in what theologians call an ordo salutis, which translates to be an order of salvation. And so the debate is not whether adoption should be included in the ordo salutis, but whether it's distinct enough from its counterparts to have its own treatment. For example, Francis Turden, who is a 17th century Reformed theologian, he does treat adoption but he includes it as just kind of a little parenthetical section of justification. And his influence even extends into the centuries to follow. So uh, we see from people like Dabney and Burkhoff, who have pretty lengthy systematic theologies, that they only have a small little paragraph on adoption. And they conclude that it's just one element of justification. And to their credit, there is a lot of similarity between adoption and justification. In both cases, they're both legal acts. It is something that God declares about a sinner. And they both involve a change in standing before God. 
And in both of these, they flow out of union with Christ. Yet the Puritans had some insight that adoption really, while it's linked with justification, the benefits that come out of adoption are distinct enough that it really warrants its own treatment. If you imagine a courtroom setting where you have a, a sinner, or a, a criminal in this case, standing before the judge, in justification, that judge says to that criminal, your record is expunged. The crimes that you've committed are remembered no more, and you can walk out of the store as a free man. But in adoption, it's more than that. In adoption, it's justification as well, where this, this criminal is pardoned, he can walk out a free man, but then the judge says, wait, before you leave, come back with me, get in my car, drive back to my house. You're going to have a room in my house. I'm going to treat you as a son. You're going to have an inheritance. Everything that I was going to give to my own children, I'm going to give to you. So there, there's much more to adoption than there is of justification. And the Puritans saw that these benefits that are given to adopted children are not just given upon forgiven sinners, but upon those that the scripture refers to as sons and daughters, as children of God, and as heirs of God. And so this short little chap chapter in the 1689 is very significant that it's included at all. So let's take a look at the text now that we have in this 12th chapter on, on adoption. And the first heading I want to take up is the foundation of adoption. And the original text reads, All those that are justified, God vouchsafed, in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. So the first question to take up is, who is justified? And the confession says, all those that are justified. Adoption is inseparably connected with God's effectual calling. God not only ordains salvation as a whole, but each individual step in that process. There are none who are justified who are not also adopted, and there are none who are adopted who are not also justified. Neither one is a result of the other, but they are both as a result of union with Christ. And while a civil adoption is usually only of one child or maybe a set of siblings, when God adopts men to be his children, he adopts the entirety of his elect. The writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 2.10 that God brings many sons to glory. But we have to be careful that we don't take this an extra step farther and say that this is unlimited atonement. There are some that would argue for the universal fatherhood of God and say that we are all children of God. And they might even point to Paul in Acts when he was in Athens, who quotes the poets who said, we are indeed his offspring, and that in him we live and move and have our being. Now, there is a sense in which all men are God is a father to all men insofar as that he is their creator and that God shows a measure of grace and mercy to all men. But it's unbiblical to deny that God has a more unique and more intimate relationship as a father to those who have believed in him. Further, adoption implies the transferal of one family to another. Because of the fall, man is no longer naturally a child of God, but the child of the devil. So, yes, there is a sense in that we can say that all men are indeed his offspring as his created beings. But the blessings that we're going to read of here in this 12th chapter are not just given to all of Adam's physical descendants. They're not just given to the children of Israel, but they're given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Well, those that are justified are those that are adopted. But now let's look at 
the grounds of adoption. And the confession writes that all those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. And this original language, vouchsafe, kind of sticks out at you first, because this is not a, a word that we use in the vernacular anymore. But I like it better than some of the modern translations say that God granted. And I like vouchsafed better because it carries a stronger sense of the condescension and the grace that's involved on God's part when he adopted us as his sons. When we adopt children in a civil adoption, it's often to fill a void in a family. Maybe there's a family that doesn't have an heir, and they want to pass on what they have to their, to their, um, their offspring, and they have none. And so they adopt to fill this void. And yet, when God adopts, he doesn't need to adopt anyone as his son. He was already eternally the father of his perfect and beloved son in whom he was well pleased. This adoption does not fill any void for God because God lacks nothing. And further, talking about how God vouchsafed, how gracious this was, there was no meriting this adoption on the part of man. God did not see anything worthy of man, worthy of adoption in man. But man in his fallen state was totally enslaved to sin. God's vouchsafing of adoption to man was neither to satisfy God's own needs nor out of any obligation to man, but it was graciously and sovereignly accomplished according to the purpose of his will. Thus, the confession refers to this unmerited gift as the grace of adoption. And the magnitude of this blessing given to undeserving sinners is what causes John to cry out in 1 John 3, one of the flagship verses for this chapter, Behold how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And whenever you see that word behold there, the writer is asking you just to, to stop and, and look at what he's looking at. Behold the, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. But it's also important to note that God does not impart grace by way of neglecting justice. As Robert Shaw notes, had God received such rebels into his favor and family without demanding a satisfaction for their offenses, this would have sullied the glory of his perfections and dishonored the law which they had violated. So the confession identifies the grounds of this adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. If you ever adopt in this lifetime, you'll know that there are many fees associated with, with a civil adoption cost thousands of dollars and a lot of paperwork. But our sonship came at a greater price. Man, who is unable to satisfy the demands of the law, required a redeemer who perfectly satisfied the law. Thus God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And why did he do this? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Though the father was perfectly satisfied with his only son, he sent him to live under the curse of the law and poured out his wrath upon him on the cross. The obedience and the atonement of Jesus Christ are the only all-sufficient grounds for our adoption as sons. Well, the rest of this chapter on adoption enumerates all of the blessings. And so let's just read through those one more time. So after we read that we are part, made partakers of the grace of adoption, by which we are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of, privileges of the children of God. 
We read that they have his name put upon them. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They're pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. The blessing of justification are many, and I don't want to in any way make them sound insignificant. But the blessings of adoption are bestowed not just because man has been justified, but because he has been taken into the number, as the confession puts it. Our relationship as adopted children have permanently changed with God forever. And as a result, man now enjoys the liberties and privileges of the relationship between a father and his children. And so in the first, first place, let's consider how it is a privilege to have God's name put upon an adopted child. When you adopt a child into your own family, that child inherits new relationships. They have a, maybe new brothers, new siblings, new parents. They have a new home, but they also have a new name. That child is now openly recognized as a member of that family. And he's not only known by that name, but it's now also his responsibility to carry on that name and, and, his, and, and that inheritance that he'll receive. It is no small honor to be given a new name and an adoption. But how much greater a blessing it is to be called and recognized by God's name. And think about that verse again in 1 John 3. What was it that caused John to cry out, Behold how great a love this is. It's that we should be called children of God. For John, simply being called by God's name was the greatest honor. And again, John in Revelation 14 when he sees the Lamb with 144,000 redeemed. These are described as undefiled and those that follow the Lamb wherever he goes. But the defining characteristic of this 144,000 is that they have the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. Having the name of God put on you is more than just a change in identity. It's not just, okay, you can be called a Christian now. It's a passport for entrance into the new Jerusalem. So Christians should take comfort, for though right now in this present lifetime being called a Christian may end up with persecution, being scoffed at, bearing the name of Christ when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven will be a great honor. And men men who bear the name of Christ will no longer be despised, but honored and glorified as they bear that name. So in the first place, we should rejoice at the privilege of simply being called children of God. Well, in the next point, the confession says that they receive the spirit of adoption. And it's fitting, I think, that the framers of the confession list this toward the top of their list of blessings, for it's very prominent among them. And we've already seen how adoption was first purposed by the father, and then it was accomplished by his son. But now we can see that adoption is actually a work of all three persons of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is very active in adoption. He bears witness to the reality of relationship change. And I'd have you turn now to Romans 8. Let's look at a couple of these verses in Romans 8. We'll start at verse 14. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. When a child is adopted, his new name is put on personal documents. And when we adopted Jacob, he was six years old. And he already had a birth certificate. He already had a social security card. But when we adopted him, he received new documents. He had received a new birth certificate with his new name put on it. And someday he'll have a driver's license that has that last name on it. And he can look at that and have proof that I'm an adopted part of this family. But an adopted child of God does not literally have God's name written on their forehead. So how is a Christian to have confidence that he is, in fact, a child of God? It is through the spirit of adoption. And as we just read in, in Romans 8, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we should again marvel at the wondrous grace of God that he would not only condescend to save us and then go the next step of adopting us as his children, but then even give us the comfort and the, the privilege of full assurance that these abundant blessings point to our adoption as his children. The Spirit testifies not only of a name change, but of a change of relationship. It's the assurance that with our adoption, we all stand to be the recipients of the intimate fatherly love of our God. So, in the third place, the third blessing that's enumerated in this chapter is that the adopted children of God have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and they're enabled to cry out, Abba, Father. One of the greatest blessings of being a Christian is prayer. And this is linked with adoption, we can see here. God delights to hear the prayers of his children, and he allows them, his children, to draw near to his throne of grace with confidence. In the Spirit, God's children have access to the Father. And they are aided by the Spirit, who we read again in Romans 8, helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. But it is also through this spirit of adoption that man is enabled to cry out, Abba, Father. And I'd have you turn to Mark 14. This is Mark's account of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice in verse 36, and Mark's the only one that includes this language here. Speaking of Christ, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Christ refers to the Father as Abba because of the intimate love that they have for each other, this love that's existed from all eternity past through the Trinity. But now, because we are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul writes that in Galatians 4, that God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The reason that we can cry out, Abba, Father, is because of our adoption. The word Abba, and I know that this congregation is very familiar with this, but the word Abba is translated Father, but it's more often used by children. It has a very tender and intimate denotation to it. There are very few sweeter words to a father's ear 
than hearing your children call them daddy. And I'm sure that anyone here who has kids remembers the first time that their children called them mommy or daddy. Um, and it was very, very memorable to me because when Jacob was first in our home as a, as a foster child, he called us by our first names. And it was in the, the summer before he started public school, when it was decided he was going to come to school with us, that we had to have this conversation of, well, Jacob, when you come to school with us, you can't call me Chris in front of all your classmates. You know, that's going to open up some doors there. And I didn't want him calling me Mr. Siegenthaler at home either. And so it was decided maybe this is the right time to, to call me Daddy. And I never forget the first time that I came home from work and Kate had been talking with him and decided, you know, you should call him Daddy when he comes home. And I walked in and he said, hi, Daddy. And, and it was, you know, it was a purposeful thing that he did that. And I'll never forget it. It's a very sweet, uh, memorable uh, moment for anybody. And even if the child is clearly saying dog, everyone's like, oh no, he said daddy. But wouldn't we be ca caught off guard if a random child off the street ran up to us, jumped up in our arms and cried out, daddy. Similarly, those who are outside of God's family, they have no right to come before him with such familiarity. But God's elect are no longer strangers but they're his adopted children. The witness of the Spirit now enables them to cry out to their Heavenly Father with that same intimacy and the same trust and confidence and tenderness that their Savior did. Well, the next three privileges of adoption that are highlighted here, they, they focus on the fatherly care that God imparts to his children in this present life. And they all start with the letter P here. They're very good at their alliteration, these Puritans. In the first place, those who are adopted can expect to receive the pity of their Heavenly Father. Now, in our culture, it's common for someone to be offended if they are pitied. We, don't, we say things like, oh, I don't want your pity, or don't, don't pity me. And there's, I think, an element of pride there that we don't want to be thought lower of than somebody else. And probably the, the most common the common quote for pity in our day is, comes from Mr. T, who says, I pity the fool. And it's an, insult to be, it's an insult to be pitied. But God's pity flows from his love and his compassion. Psalm 103, the psalmist writes, He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows our struggles with sin. He knows that our frame is fragile and that we fade and wither as the grass does. And God remembers how he formed Adam of the dust, and that we will return to dust. Our condition in the eyes of God is truly pitiable. Yet, how blessed is the one who God pities. For the outworking of this pity is a tender and patient care of a compassionate and loving father. Last night at the New Year's Eve party, there was a, a moment where there was a bunch of toddlers all in the same room as each other. And they were not there by themselves. There were parents hovering all around them. And anytime a, a toddler is walking around, you can see the parents keeping eyes and they're ready to rush to their aid. Now, if that was a room full of teenagers, it wouldn't be the same thing. Because we know the frame of that teenager can, can walk around, they can fall and get back up and they'll be fine. But what brings these, these parents to, to hover around their children to care for them is they know their frame, they know their weaknesses. 
Similarly, if you had a child who watches their mother do the dishes and do the laundry and that child decides, you know what, I want to help my mother out. And so they go to the laundry room and they grab the detergent and they go to the dishwasher and they pour the, the laundry detergent into the dishwasher and they close it up and hit the button. That mother's first response is, no, what you do? But the thing that restrains the mother from, from being um, angry with her child and restrains their temper is patience and compassion that comes out of knowing that child's limitations, that child was trying to help, that child doesn't have the same know-how that I do as, as a grown person. And if an earthly and sinful father or mother is able to show such compassion to his children, how much greater is the patience and pity of the Heavenly Father to his children? We read that again in Psalm 103.13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Well, God not only knows our frame, but he also knows of the great number of spiritual dangers which we face in this life. Yet his adopted children have no need to fear, for they are able to find their protection and refuge in the Lord. Our Heavenly Father has the utmost concern for, and for the well-being and protection of his children. We read in Matthew 23, 2337, Even as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, the Lord will protect us. It is because of the filial relationship brought about through adoption that he comforts, his one, comforts us, as Isaiah says, as one whom his mother comforts. And the protection of his people is of such importance to the Father that he spares none of his resources to accomplish it. And the following passages in the Old Testament really demonstrate the priority that the Father has in protecting his children. We'll read first in Psalm 34, 7, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps around them. Psalm 125, 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. And I'll have you turn to 2 Kings 6.17. Well, actually, we'll back up to 6.15. This is the account of Elisha and his servant when they were surrounded by their enemy. In 2 Kings 6.15, we read that when the servant of the man of God, that's of Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So look at the extent that the Lord goes to protect his people. He has armies of angels at his disposal. And though we may not always see it, we can be assured as children of God that God is very concerned with our protection. Well, they are pitied, they are protected, but they are also provided for. And of course, all creatures are subject to God's providential care. Yet, the recipients of a divine adoption have the privilege of receiving the special care as from a father. God doesn't care for the birds of the field as a father. He doesn't clothe the lilies as a father, but he cares for us as a father. 
And here I'll have you turn to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. There's a couple of passages I want to bring out about God's special fatherly care for his people. We'll read in Matthew 6.30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Notice that there is a level of care that extends to all of creation, including the plants and the animals, and by implication, all things. Yet, Christ points out that there's a higher level of care enjoyed by those who call God their heavenly Father. For they are exhorted not to be anxious over these things as the Gentiles are. But perhaps Jesus perceived that there were some in the crowd that were still not convinced of the extent of his care. And so, later on, In chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, very familiar verses. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The love that a father has for his children compels him to give him good things. A week ago was Christmas, and even the wicked people of the world went out and spent fortunes to make sure that their children were happy on Christmas morning. They wanted to give them good things. Even sinful man desires to provide what is best for his family. So we should expect our Holy Father to provide his children with what they need. And again, Christ makes it clear in this passage that this is a privilege of those who have a Father who is in heaven, those who are adopted. Well, in the next place, we read that the adopted children have the privilege of being chastened by God as a father. Now, if you had a a child, a toddler, again, who was walking towards the wood stove and they're reaching out, you would swat their hand away. You'd slap it away and it would cause that child some pain. But what was it that would cause you to do that? Isn't an action that's born out of love? An action that has the best interests of that child at heart? Now, if we had the children in here and I asked them, how many of you think that it's a a privilege to be punished by your parents, to be chastened by your parents? There probably wouldn't be too many hands. But if I was to ask the same thing to some young adults who have have grown and left their house and observed uh, friends and other people who have grown up without that chastening hand of their parents, there would be many who would say that it's good for me that I was afflicted. And again, this is a privilege that is only bestowed upon God's children. He disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. When you're you're studying these passages, it's it's incredible how many of them, we we read over these words like son, sonship so many times without linking that back to adoption. But these things like prayer and chastisement, all, all these privileges, even assurance, are all linked to adoption. The one who experiences the discipline of God should not suppose that he has lost the affections of his Holy Father. But this discipline is the very evidence of God's love. And again, in Job 5.17, we read that blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Well, let's consider the, the final 
three privileges of this, this chapter. We read that they are never cast off, but they are sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So far, the privileges mentioned in the confession are those that are received immediately when one is adopted, and they are experienced by the believer in this present lifetime. The last three blessings of adoption from this list are promises of a future or eternal nature. And the first of these comes on the heels of the, of the blessings of fatherly discipline. Though God's adopted child may feel the rod and stripes of their heavenly father, God will never remove his steadfast love nor violate his covenant. God's covenant is an everlasting covenant. Indeed, one of the things that the spirit of adoption bears witness to that we have assurance of is that the Lord will not cast off forever. Our sonship is an eternal sonship. Now, when I was younger, my little sister used to beg my parents for a cat. And we were through and through dog people. And eventually, to her delight, after a lot of pestering, my parents gave in and we went to a shelter and we adopted this older cat. But after a few days of living with this cat, it became very clear to my parents why this cat was in the shelter in the first place. <laughs> and after destroying our carpet and several pieces of furniture, our parents decided that, you know, we were never cat people to begin with. And the cat went back to the shelter. But God's adoption is not so superficial. And God's adoption is not that temporary. It's not grounded in the righteousness of man, but on the grace of God. We're like those cats that are scratching the furniture. We don't deserve to be adopted. But it's based fully on God's grace, which is unwavering. God takes us into his family, the sinful creatures that we are, and he promises to never leave or forsake us. Even when we are under his rod and he is chastising us, he promises to love us with an everlasting love. And the positive side of this blessing, that we would not be cast off, is that we are sealed for the day of redemption. And though there is a present aspect of redemption here now, we who are the children of God have a future hope and an eager expectation for the day of redemption when we no longer require the chastening of the Lord. And we can be assured of this hope, for we have been sealed, for the day, for, uh, sealed in the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Just as we have the name of the Lord written on our foreheads, we've been sealed with the name of God. He's guaranteeing that he will keep us as his sons. And then at the day of redemption, he will make us to be like his own beloved son. And then the final promise from this chapter is that the adopted children of God will inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. In Ephesians 1, Paul uses that term predestined twice. And I'll have you turn there so you can see this. Ephesians chapter 1. The first that we read of this is in chapter 5, when we, sorry, in verse 5, chapter 1, when Paul writes, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And then later in, in verse 11, In him we have obtained, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. An adopted child might stand to receive property, our adopted children and our family are going to receive the same inheritance as any biological children that we end up having. They might receive a title 
if you are adopted into maybe a royal family or other forms of inheritance. But these things, while valuable, are temporary. God's adopted children stand to receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, if a father in this world were to share his inheritance with all of his children equally, rather than give it to one single heir, it would diminish the amount that each child would receive. If you had 12 children, you would think that each one of these children is only going to receive a smaller and smaller portion. And as that, that family keeps on having more kids, the inheritance is going to shrink for each one of those, those kids. So a family with a very large number of sons would not receive very much at all. But though God has brought many sons to glory, and the adopted children are exceedingly numerous, their sharing of the inheritance does not in any way spread it thin, nor diminish the quality of it. The heirs of God, who are fellow heirs with Christ, are thoroughly blessed by this matchless inheritance. And the fullness of this blessing is yet to come. But the scripture mentions several ways that we are inheriting God's promises as his children. Scripture mentions that we are heirs of God, that we are heirs of the grace of life, heirs of the promises, heirs of the kingdom, heirs of an eternal inheritance, and heirs of salvation. As joint heirs with Christ, the adopted children of God are graciously brought into an exclusive relationship, a relationship of love that's existed eternally between the persons of the Trinity. And this is why many consider adoption to be prominent in God's redemptive work. When one considers the blessings of partaking in triune affection as a member of God's family, it's understandable why someone referred to adoption as the apex of redemptive grace and privilege. And before we close, I just want to give you a couple of quick applications. The first one is that our sonship as adopted children is not the same as Christ's sonship. When the resurrected Christ first appeared to Mary Magdalene, he tells her, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Having secured our adoption through his atonement, how Jesus must have delighted to announce the news of their adoption to his brethren. Yet his language doesn't say, go and tell our father and our God. He says, go and tell my God and your God, my father and your father. Our sonship began at the moment of saving faith, yet Christ's sonship is from eternity past. As the second person of the Trinity, Christ is equal with the Father in power and glory. And though we are joint heirs with Christ, we need to be careful not to speak of our sonship as equal with his. Another application is that we need to have childlike obedience to our Heavenly Father. Relationships are a two-way street, and I, I really enjoy how the confession talks about all the privileges of adoption, but it doesn't really go through what that means for us as our relationship back to the Father. Doesn't our sonship also imply certain corresponding actions on our part? And these actions that we show to the Father, they don't merit our adoption, but they're the visible manifestation of our reciprocal love for the Father who adopted us. And first of all, we are to be imitators of God as beloved children, Children tend to imitate the behaviors of their parents. And even as an adoptive parent, I've seen that with my own son. Over the years, how he's come to take on some of my mannerisms and my bad habits and some of my interests over the years. 
And a child's love for his father will naturally result in their imitating him. And it is likewise a natural result of our love for our Heavenly Father to imitate him. We are to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And we are to be forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And in the last place, before we close, a final application is that understanding the doctrine of adoption has implications for how we treat our fellow saints. As we become imitators of God and we love the same things that he loves, we should be growing in our love for our adopted brothers and sisters. These people, they have also been pitied and protected and provided for by our Heavenly Father. These are the same ones that are sealed for the day of redemption, and we can relate to one another in a deeper way than we do the rest of the world. And this point is so fundamental to the life of a believer that a lack of love for our spiritual brethren is evidence that we are not children of God. We can read much about that in 1 John. Our times together should be marked with joy and with fellowship, for these are the same ones with whom we will spend all of eternity, beholding the glory of our Father in heaven. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, as we consider this blessing of being called a child of God, Lord, we we stand in awe of this amazing fact, Lord, that you would not only condescend to save vile sinners such as us, Lord, but that you would bring us into your family, that you would treat us as a father treats his children with the same intimate love, that, Lord, that you show to your own only begotten son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that these truths would not only um, take hold in our minds, but also in our hearts, that that would manifold a a difference in how we treat one another, how we we respond to the chastening of our Heavenly Father, how we respond in love and obedience to you, Lord. We pray that we truly be imitators of our Father, that we would be a light to the world around us, Lord, that as we bear the name of, of God on our foreheads, that it would be evident to those around us that we are children of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.